can follow along inside the outline, or inside the program, there's an outline you can use to follow along with today. If you remember last year, in 2021, we did an Old Testament survey series. Do you remember doing that? And we preached the entire Old Testament. Uh, it was a foreshadowing of Christ, we remember. And if you remember, we left out entirely the book of Daniel. We didn't even touch on the book of Daniel. Why did we do that? Well, it's not because Daniel is not important or that Daniel is insignificant. Because it's very important. And it's, it's, it's too significant to just do like a one-week overview of it. So what we decided to do is we're going to spend the next five months. There's 12 chapters in Daniel, so 12 different sermons, one week for each chapter, next five months, going through the book of Daniel. Now, if you attended Sunday school as a child, or if you read through the book of Daniel before, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about this guy, Daniel? Lion's Den. Daniel in the Lion's Den. And you think the book of Daniel is all about Daniel and all these great things. As I've been studying the book of Daniel, realize that the book of Daniel is not so much about Daniel, but it's all about God. God is the primary character in the book of Daniel. Daniel's just a sub-character in that book. And really, that's a microcosm of our life. You see, each of our lives is a story. And maybe each year of your life is a chapter in that story. And if you live to be 70 years old, there's 70 chapters in your story. God is intended to be the main character of our story. Each one of us, story's not about us. Amen. We're just a sub-character. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Daniel. And each week, each chapter is really about God. Um, next week, it's going to be all credit goes to God. The week after that, chapter 3 is the, the incarnation of God. Chapter 4, the justice and mercy of God. All these things are about God. And today, it's all about the sovereign hand of God. We're going to see Daniel as a sub-character, but it's really about God and his sovereign hand that he's in control. Chris just led us in saying that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that's what the sovereignty of God is. He's the Lord. He's in charge. He is in control. Today we're going to see the sovereign hand of God. Now as always, when we're studying and when you're reading the scriptures, we want to take things in context to understand things correctly so that we can apply things to our life correctly. So let's understand the context of Daniel by beginning, first of all, with a timeline. Let's see where does Daniel take place? When does it take place? Let's do a little bit of history here. 722 B.C. was the year that the Assyrian Empire, they were in the northeast of where Israel and Judah was located. The Assyrians conquered Israel. I'm going to show you a map in a second. In Israel, God's people were divided into two different segments. The northern kingdom, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was Judah. Do you remember that from last year, the northern and southern kingdom? Well, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. They tried to conquer the southern kingdom, Judah, but they were, uh, they were repelled by God's people in Judah. Well, about 110 years later, in 612 B.C., 
the Babylonians from the east conquered the Assyrians there and defeated them. Seven years later, in 605 BC, a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to read about him in the book of Daniel, maybe you've heard his name before, King Nebuchadnezzar became the king of the Babylonians. That same year, the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians to the southwest of Jerusalem and Judea and that land. And then in that same year that Nebuchadnezzar became king, that Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians, he also defeated, uh, he conquered Jerusalem and Judah. There was a king named Jehoiakim, who was King Josiah, the great King Josiah, his son. He was defeated. They were defeated because they had rejected God. They had forsaken God's laws. They had worshipped other gods. And so they were defeated, and King Nebuchadnezzar took people into captivity back to the east, back to Babylon. He took the brightest and the best, including our boy Daniel from the book of Daniel. Now let's look at a couple of maps here. You can see the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, there, was defeated, first of all, in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel was taken captive. Let's look at where these, um, these invasions took place. You can see from the northeast, Assyria, where they came and took the northern kingdom of Israel, 722, and then can you see Babylonia, the Babylonians, further to the east, where they came into Judah then and defeated them, and right the same year, you can see Egypt on that map as well. Let's keep looking at this timeline. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar defeated King Jehoiakim and put his brother Jehoiachin in power in Jerusalem. Well, in 597, Jehoiachin led a rebellion against the Babylonians. So Nebuchadnezzar came back and they suppressed the rebellion and they took more exiles back to Babylonia. In fact, 10,000 of them this time, including the prophet Ezekiel. So if you read the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, that guy, Ezekiel, he wrote those prophecies from Babylonia. He was a contemporary of Daniel. He knew Daniel. Well, then 586 B.C., um, a guy named Zedekiah had been put in power in Jerusalem. He led a rebellion, and finally the Babylonians came to Jerusalem. They completely destroyed the city walls, and they completely destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Well, then for the next 45 or so years, 47 years, the Babylonians were in the power. They were the superpower of the world. Then in 539 B.C., and we're going to read about this when we get to chapter 5, uh, King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire came and they conquered Babylon. And then the next year is when this King Cyrus allowed exiles to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and that's in the book of Ezra, and then a little bit later, return and build the wall around Jerusalem. That's in the book of Nehemiah. Do you remember all that from last year? That's sort of our timeline for what's going on here. Let's do a little bit of background now on the book of Daniel. It was written by Daniel himself, probably around the year 530 B.C. Daniel was actually quoted by Jesus. Jesus knew the Old Testament scriptures. 
He memorized the Old Testament scriptures. He quoted from the book of Daniel in Matthew 24, 15. He was talking about later days, end times, the end of the world prophecy that Daniel had given when he said that the abomination that causes desolation will come into the temple. This book is a book of history, and we're going to see historical things that take place. But it's also a book of prophecy. Real interesting, the prophecy here, because there was both short-term prophecy and long-term prophecy. Daniel's going to prophesy some things that are going to happen within the next 100 years of his existence. He's also going to prophesy some things that are going to happen within the next 400 years of his existence. And those same prophecies had a double meaning to them because they also refer to things that have not happened yet. The end of time. And that's what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24, 15. Book of history, book of prophecy. The events in this book cover 70 years of real time. Two different kingdoms. The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Daniel was connected in both of those. I didn't realize this, but Daniel wrote in two different languages. Chapter 1 and half of chapter 2 are written in Hebrew. And then chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. But those middle chapters, half of 2 and all the way through 7, are written in Aramaic. He wrote two different languages. But the one theme that's throughout the entire book of Daniel, we're going to start to see it today, and you're going to see it every week, is the theme of God's sovereignty. That God is the one who's in control. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And there's a verse, chapter 5, verse 21, that's like the central verse, a central theme that threads throughout the entire book. And I love this. It says that the most high God, and I love that name for God, he is the most high God. He is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he sets over them anyone that he wishes. That the Lord God, the most high God, he is in control. You think about history. The Egyptians were in power. God, the Most High God, removed them from power. When God's people, the Israelites, went into the Promised Land, the Canaanites were in power. God removed them, and he set his people up in power around the year 1300 B.C. up until 586 B.C. For that season of time, they were in power. But because of their disobedience, he removed them. He brought in the Assyrians, then he brought in the Babylonians, then he brought in the Medo-Persians, and then later it would be the Greeks, and then the Romans, and then so on through history that God is sovereign, he is most high, and he orders the kingdom of men. And we're going to see that today, the sovereignty of God. We're going to read through first, uh, first chapter, and then let's look at how we can apply what God's doing to our lives. Daniel 1 Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, remember him, king of Judah, this was the year 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, into, uh, king of Judah, into his hand. Remember, God is the one who sets kingdoms, sets anyone that he wishes. Why did God do this? Why was God turning his back on his own people? Didn't he tell us, I will never leave you, never forsake you? Why did God forsake them and hand them over? Well, actually, this was God's divine justice. He promised he would do this in 1 Kings chapter 9, 
verses 4 through 9, he came, told the third king of Jerusalem, of Judah, King Solomon, that if you forsake me, I will hand you over to your enemies. They will come and they will besiege you. And so God was fulfilling his promise here. This was his divine justice. This was his sovereign hand. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into King Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Verse 3. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered uh, Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. So Daniel was not part of the royal family, but he was a nobleman. He was part of nobility in Jerusalem, and he was brought in. Verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Daniel was probably a teenager, probably about 16 years old at this time. He was included in this group. This Ashpenaz was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. That's where Daniel learned Aramaic was during this time of education. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah. Here's our boy Daniel, and then Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These guys were then given new names. Verse 7. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, and you've heard this before, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Gave them, and we're going to see these three guys in chapter 3 in a couple weeks. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. What would be defiling about this? You see, there was Jewish law, dietary law, that restricted what they could eat. Couldn't eat pork, couldn't eat fat, couldn't eat certain types of meat or shellfish. And he did not want to violate, he wanted to remain pure. Well, what about the wine? They were allowed to partake in the wine, but Daniel had this higher standard that he wasn't going to do it. He did not want to defile himself. Purity was important to Daniel. Purity was a priority to Daniel. As disciples of Christ, that's got to become a priority and an importance for us. Purity, not defiling ourselves. Taking great care not to defile ourselves with, with what we see, or what we say, or what we listen to, or what company we keep, where we go. Purity is important. Verse 9. Now, God had caused, we see the hand of God, the sovereign hand of God. He did this work. He caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. He was telling him, 
if I don't feed you what he's told me to feed you, and you're not healthy, and you don't look strong, and this, this affects you in a negative way, king's going to kill me. I don't want to do this. Well, verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard who the chief official appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for just 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they actually looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave, we see the sovereign hand of God here, God gave them knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel, he could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Well, at the end of the set time, time set by the king to bring them in, the three years had passed, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, don't let this just flash by. This is a huge deal. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the superpower of the known world at this time. And these guys are brought in before him. What a humbling experience that they were brought before the king. Well, the king talked with them, verse 19, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Why? Because God had given them this special ability. The hand of God was on them. That's why they were different and set apart. So they entered the king's service. Last two verses. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters of his whole kingdom. Why? Because God's sovereign hand was upon them. He's the one who gave them them that ability. Verse 21, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The first year of King Cyrus, remember, was 539 B.C., but we do know that Daniel maybe was not at that high official level of service, but we know that King Cyrus's son Darius had a good friendship that we're going to see later on in chapter, I think, 5 and 6. We're going to see that, but that's where Daniel remained. So this first chapter of Daniel, as we begin this series, uh, it reveals two important things about God, and it also reveals three important things about Daniel. Let's begin by looking at these two important things about God. First of all, did you notice the justice of God? Verse 2 says that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Why did he do this? This was an act of justice because the kings of Judah and Israel and the people of Judah and Israel disobeyed God. They broke and violated God's law and God's covenant and God promised them that this would be the consequences. This was justice. Remember I mentioned 1 Kings 9 verses 4 through 9 where the lawbreakers get punished. Consequences are given. That's the justice of God. God's not a harsh and punitive God. He's very patient. He's very merciful. God could have brought this justice 
centuries before this because the kings for centuries had been disobeying and violating God's laws. But he was merciful. He was patient. And when God's people and the kings repented of their sins and returned to him, he relented of his punishment. But justice did come in God's due time. We need to know two things here. First of all, when we violate God's law, when we sin, be quick to repent. When you wander from God, when you do stupid, foolish, sinful things and turn away from God, be quick to repent. Praise God, he is merciful and he is patient with us. But remember, his remedy when we wander and stray and sin is to repent. Turn from the sin, return to God. Praise God and thank God that the older I get and the longer that I walk with Christ and the more I pursue him and the more that he grows me and mature, praise God that I actually, I sin less than I used to. And it's, 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 there's, it's, it's less frequent. And as you grow, you'll see that God helps you to sin less. God helps you to walk in righteousness. And really, that's the best way to live, isn't it? And, but... You and I, we still do stupid things. We still go our own way. We still sin against the Most High God. But He's given us this great gift of repentance. We can turn from that sin, turn back to Him, restore it immediately, and enjoy that fellowship with Him. So be quick to repent. God's merciful and patient. And it's in our best interest to repent right away and turn back to Him and have that sin absolved. Second thing that we need to know about the justice of God is that it will come one day. We live in a world full of injustice. We've mentioned before, the last several months, uh, the news, it's, it's dominated less now, but it had been more by the invasion of the country of Ukraine. And how there, there are just wars. I would, I would just submit that the Revolutionary War, the United States Civil War, World War I, World War II, those were just wars against evil, suppressing evil. But there's also unjust wars. And this is an unjust invasion of a sovereign nation. We've talked about that before. There's also a lot of injustice that goes on. And you know how I feel about politicians. There's a lot of corruption and liars. There's people who are supposed to be public servants. And so many politicians serve themselves. And injustice goes on. And criminals go free. And there's violence, and there, we've talked about human trafficking, and all this, all forms of wickedness, and people get away with it. And we wonder, when's the justice going to come? And it will come. It might be delayed for years, but it will come. The Israelites, their justice, it was delayed for decades, even centuries. But eventually, God's justice will come. There is a biblical justice, and simply, Biblical justice is the lawbreakers get punished. That's what justice is. And the innocent go free. And justice, remember, is blind. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. doesn't matter if you're a celebrity or a political official. Justice gets the same for everybody. That's biblical justice. There's also um, a divine justice. End of time, 
Those who know Christ, have put their faith in Christ, and believe in Christ, have eternal life in heaven. Justice has been paid through the blood of Christ and the death of Christ. Those who reject Christ, their sins are still upon them, and at that point in time, that justice will take place, and their sins will be paid for by them. Justice will take place. God is a God of justice. We also see in Daniel 1, beside the justice of God, we see the sovereignty of God, the sovereign hand of God. Now let's define what we mean by sovereignty. It means that God is in control of all things at all times. Simply, God's in control. He either causes things to happen or allows things to happen. Everything that happens, either caused by God or allowed by God. And he does that, everything that happens, it's for his glory and for our good, according to his plan. Now sometimes we might not understand, in fact a lot of times we might not understand. One of our chapters in Daniel, we're going to talk about the mysteries of God, where we don't understand what happens. Our minds can't wrap around or comprehend God's plan and how he's orchestrating things and why he lets things happen. But part of knowing that God is sovereign is we can rest easy and we can trust him. We see that he's sovereign in verse 2 where scripture says, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim into the Babylonians' hands. This was God's doing. You see, the Assyrians, remember when they conquered the northern kingdom in 722? They tried to conquer Judah at that point, but it wasn't God's plan for that to happen yet. God kept them at bay, defeated them, because there was another 110 years to go before, the, before Judah was going to be conquered. That was God's appointed time, 605 B.C. In verse 5, we read that God sovereignly had Daniel and his three friends trained for, third, for three years for the king's service. You see, that was part of God's plan. They were going to be a blessing to Babylonia. They were going to be a blessing to the Israelites who were in exile in Babylonia. They were going to be in place so that the, the, the Medo-Persians would allow people to go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall. That was all part of God's plan, that he had those three men and Daniel put in that position. And also, when we get to chapter 7, we're going to see a prophecy of the Son of Man. First time in Scripture that the Son of Man which is the title that Jesus referred to himself as more often than any other title. We're going to see that coming from Daniel. That was all part of God's plan. Verse 9, remember that God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. God put him, think about your position in life, your, your job that you have. Can you believe that God gave you that job? He gave that to you. You can impact people around you. Maybe you've had good bosses before. Maybe you've had bad bosses before. Maybe you've had a boss that had a lot of favoritism towards you. Maybe you've had a boss that's mistreated you. Both of those things, God is in control to bless you or to shape you and form you and craft you. God's doing those things. And in verse 17, God gave Daniel ability to understand visions and dreams. God did this. Why? Because God was going to speak to people through visions and dreams. We're going to see it in chapter 2, verse 1, that Nebuchadnezzar had a vision, and Daniel could understand it. In chapter 4, verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision. Daniel could, could understand it and explain it. 
And then later in chapter 5, verse 12, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, in chapter 5, verse 12, he had a, a vision. Daniel could understand it. And then God spoke to Daniel in visions in chapter 7, 8, and 10. So this was a gift from God, a sovereign gift for his purposes. Now we talk about the sovereignty of God. Our response is always trust. We can trust him. He's at work always. For our good always. Now this, sometimes things may seem bad. Things may seem that they're against you. Things may seem out of control. But God is in control and you can trust him. There was a three-year period where Daniel and his guys, the three other guys, were being trained and equipped. Sometimes your difficulty may seem like it's three years or longer, but God is still in control. He's at work. As we study the book of Daniel over the next five months, we're going to see some very bad situations that at the time seem impossible or hopeless. But God is sovereign. He revealed is sovereign. He is faithful, he's trustworthy, and he's good, and he's merciful. So in your time of difficulty, where it seems out of control, you can trust him. You can turn to him, seek him, read his word, be convinced by his word, be comforted by his word that he's in control. Well, Daniel chapter 1 reveals those two things about God. His justice, his sovereignty, and we also see three things about Daniel. Let's see how we can apply to our lives, how we can live as disciples of Christ the way that Daniel lived as an obedient servant of God. First of all, we see that Daniel was righteous. In verse 8, he resolved not to defile himself. And again, this is referring to the dietary laws from Leviticus 3.17. And of course, we know, side note, that we are not under the old covenant of the dietary laws. In fact, Jesus specifically absolved them in Matthew 7, sorry, Mark 7, verse 19. But the point here is that, that Daniel did um, the right thing. He was a righteous young man. Purity was important to him. Purity was a priority to him. He did not want to sin against God in any ways. In fact, they were in captivity in Babylon because of the people sinning against God. He didn't want to do this. Remember I mentioned Ezekiel was taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar? He was a contemporary of Daniel's. He wrote this prophecy while he was in Babylon in 597. Uh, and in this prophecy, he included... Daniel, he was prophesying um, about a wicked town that was under judgment of God. And this is what Ezekiel said. If these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, now let's think about it. Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, there was no one like him. He was the only righteous person that God could find on the earth at that time. And then Job, God taunted Satan about Job. Is there anybody like him, righteous like Job? And Daniel is included with those guys. Moses isn't mentioned. Joshua isn't mentioned. King David isn't mentioned. King Josiah isn't mentioned. But it's Noah, Job, and Daniel. If these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, in this town, they could save only themselves, because the town is so wicked, 
by their righteousness. Daniel was known as a righteous person, declares the sovereign Lord. And I love how Ezekiel, again, emphasizes, because he's in Babylon, he can see the sovereign hand of God while he's living there. Verse 20, Ezekiel said, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in this town, this wicked town, they would save only themselves. The town's not going to be saved by their righteousness. See, Daniel had the reputation of righteousness. And it was an earned reputation because purity was a priority. People saw it, and God saw this about him. The book of Daniel is a challenge for us. It's a call to us to forsake sin, to avoid what may ever defile us. Now, we know that. We can only stand righteous before God through Christ, right? We are unrighteous, we're sinful. It's only by being forgiven by Christ that we can stand righteous before him. But our days on this earth as disciples of Christ, we want to live righteously. We repent of sin, and with God's help, with his Holy Spirit, we live righteously. We change our habits. Sometimes we have to change our friends. We change our language. We change our priorities in order to live righteously. That's what disciples do. We see in the book of Daniel that Daniel was righteous. We also see that he was gifted by God. Do you remember in verse 17, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God gave him these gifts, and God has gifted you. He's gifted each one of us. Two different types of gifts. We've got natural gifts. Maybe you're gifted in, in music or gifted uh, with your hands. You're a craftsman and you can do things with your hands. Maybe you're an artisan or maybe you've got scholastic ability, uh, good intellect and, and, and real smart. And, or maybe you're gifted athletically or you've got a, a quick wit and a good sense of humor. Or maybe you're gifted where you're empathetic and sympathetic and compassionate towards people and you're like a caregiver to people. Maybe you're gifted in, in public speaking or the ability to teach people by, by understanding things and making it plain and simple and understandable. Maybe you've got a mechanical mind and you can just see how A plus B equals C in these things. Maybe you're gifted as an entrepreneur, as a businessman or businesswoman. You've got these different gifts. And if you've got these gifts, whatever gifts God has given you, develop that gift. Work at it. Become good at that gift. Don't just develop it, but then use that gift for your benefit in life and also to benefit other people in life. And there's one other thing we do with that gift, is we worship God with that gift. Because if I use whatever gift he's given me as best as I can, for his glory and honor, that's a form of worship of him. So God's given us natural gifts. He's also given you, if you've put your faith in Christ to forgive your sins, he's given you a spiritual gift. When you put your faith in Christ, Ephesians 1 tells us, the Holy Spirit comes inside us and he dwells us, and he brings with him a special spiritual gift. And that gift is not for my benefit, but it's for the benefit of the church. 
I can use that gift in the church to serve. Uh, Romans 12, 3 through 8, lists several of those gifts. What is your gift? One of the gifts listed is the gift of serving. Now, each one of us, we're called to serve, to be servants, just like Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So all of us can serve, but some people, they've got the gift of serving. They love to do it. They look for any type of opportunity to do it. We've got several, like Pei Yun has got that gift, man. She just loves to serve people. I know that Chuck does, man. He wants to get here early, pass out programs as people come in. When we've done work days, man, Rich is out there with the pressure washer, doing whatever he can. He'll even forsake and pass up the Kudrowski's donuts just to keep his... Some of y'all, many of y'all have that gift of serving, and it benefits the church when you serve. Another gift listed in Romans 12 is the gift of giving. That's the ability to, to earn money and love to give money. Love to be generous with that money and help different needs in the church with that, that gift of, of giving. That's a spiritual gift. Some people have the spiritual gift of mercy and or caring for people. Where you just have a sympathetic heart and you love to serve people and go visit people and take care of them and bring food and things like that. Other people have the gift of teaching, able to understand God's word and explain it in an understandable way so that other people can grow from it. Others have the gift of leadership or administration, where you're able to lead and to organize and you can help people to follow you as you're following Christ. Other people have the gift of faith, where you simply believe that God has told us to do this even though there's different obstacles, we're going to do this because God's with us. He's the one leading us. That's the gift of faith. And the final gift listed there in Romans 12 is the gift of encouragement or exhortation, where you build people up. You can speak encouraging words to them. Help them to see what God says about them, their identity in Christ. Rather than this world which tears people down, you build people up. Whatever spiritual gift that you have has been given to you from God so that you can use it to build up his church. So God gave Daniel gifts. He's given us gifts. So let's use those gifts, natural gifts to benefit ourselves, benefit other people, to worship God, and these spiritual gifts to build up the church. Let's not squander these gifts. Let's not waste these gifts. Let's use these gifts. And finally, as we land this plane, we see about Daniel in verses 4, 17, and 20 that Daniel had received wisdom from God. Now, I want to ask you a question. I was thinking about this. Is there anything more important for disciples of Christ to have on earth than wisdom? The most important thing we need is Christ, obviously. Forgiveness of sins only through Christ. Christ is our life, now and forever, eternal life through him. But of any possession on earth, whether it's success or wealth or, or good relationships, is anything more important than having wisdom? Because wisdom will lead to those other things. Wisdom. You can have those other things without wisdom. There's a, such a thing as a smart fool 
There's a lot of intelligent people that are fools. There's a lot of wealthy people who are fools. There's a lot of successful people who are fools. A lot of people who've got a lot of friends who are fools. Wisdom, is there anything more important than having wisdom? When my kids were little and we would pray with them before they went off to school, I'd always pray for them every single day that they would be wise. And they probably got here, tired of hearing me say this when they go places. Uh, be wise. Uh, our son Josh will still tell us, yeah, I'll be wise, even before I have to say anything. My daughter was a school teacher until her daughter was born, and then she resigned from that position. And she told me, she told her kids every day at every class as they were leaving, she would tell them, be wise. She said, I got that from you, Dad. Because you said that all the time, to be wise. You guys know that I pray for you all every week, every single person. And I pray that you will grow to be mature in Christ. I pray that you will be a worker in the harvest field, storing up treasure in heaven. And I pray that you will grow in wisdom. Because I don't know if there's anything more important. That's the challenge, is to pursue wisdom. I'm just going to end by looking at different passages from Scripture about how do we get wisdom, and then what does a wise life look like? Just a couple things. First of all, this is what the Proverbs says. King Solomon, who was arguably the wisest person ever, he said to his son, verse 5, get wisdom. Just get it. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom. Because wisdom will protect you. Love her. Love wisdom. And she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it cost you everything, get understanding. It's the most important thing. How do we get wisdom? Well, James, the brother of Jesus, said, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So in life, every day, ask God, give me wisdom. When you're facing a decision in a circumstance, ask God, what, what's the wise thing to do? And sometimes, sometimes, he doesn't answer right away. You just got to wait. Good things are said in the Bible about people who wait upon the Lord. So don't be afraid to wait on him for that wisdom. So when you ask him for that wisdom, how does he give it to us? Where does it come from? Well, first of all, in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Walt and I have talked a number of times about the importance of the fear of the Lord, and that's where wisdom comes from. When we respect God and honor God and seek God and submit to Him, that's what fearing means, and obey Him, that's where wisdom begins with Him. Let's talk about that fear of the Lord. Verse, Proverbs 14, 16 says that a wise man fears the Lord, and it includes shunning evil. So part of fearing God, part of wisdom is we, we shun evil, we turn from sin. Sin is not our friend. It cripples us. Sin captures us and enslaves us. So pursuing righteousness is part of wisdom. And you notice this next part of that sentence? A fool, someone who's not wise, they're hot-headed and reckless. A wise person is self-controlled and measured and tempered not controlled by their emotions, not hot-headed or tempered or reckless. 
2 Timothy 3.15 tells us where wisdom comes from. We ask God for it. It's from fearing him and shunning evil. Uh, he, Paul said to Timothy from infancy, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise. First of all, for salvation through faith in Christ, but also through general wisdom. That's how we grow wise. We ask God for it, and then we search his word, his holy scriptures. When we have decisions to make, we see what do his scriptures say about these decisions? Listen, reading scripture is never wasted time. I've wasted a lot of time watching TV shows on an app, on a website, on Facebook, doing different, I've wasted, reading scripture is never wasted time. You want wisdom about how to handle money, how to handle marriage, how to handle relationships, how to handle business? We look to God's word. Read books, not from fools in the world, but from godly followers of Christ who use scripture to give us wisdom to make those things happen. Proverbs 12, 15, and chapter 13, 10 say the same thing about how to get wisdom. The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Not advice from fools, but advice from wise people. You don't just make your own decisions based on how you feel, but get advice from wise people. Chapter 13, 10, pride only brings quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. So when you have a decision to make, ask wise people for their advice. Don't ask fools for their advice, but ask wise people. What's the wise thing to do? Proverbs 15, 31 says, he who listens to life-giving rebuke will be at home with the wise. So this is tough to do. Ask people to correct you. Give people the permission. Hey, if you see me veering off course, or, you know, we all have blind spots, things that we're unaware about ourselves, ask somebody who's an older advisor, hey, would you please, I want to give you permission to correct me. I've had several great mentors in my life and continue to still have them. Older guys, and I've told them that before, please correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm off base on something, I want you to correct me. So ask yourself the question, are you teachable? Are you correctable? Because the wise are open to that. Just four more verses here. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with the wise grows wise. But a companion of fools suffers harm because you become a fool and you do foolish things. So who are you walking with? Who have you allied yourself with? Who do you spend time with? You may need to ditch some of your friends who are fools. I want to encourage you, during the summer we, we don't have most of our disciple groups going on. We've got our young adult disciple group, our, our student ministry disciple group meets once a month. When we ramp things back up in September, I want to encourage you to get in a disciple group. You want to grow wise? Um, that's a great place to connect and be with wise folks to do that. All right, three more verses. And these ones are just about, and this is an exhaustive list, some of the things that wise people do. Just a few. Verse, uh, Proverbs 21.20, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. 
The wise person saves up, but a foolish man, he devours all he has. He doesn't save things up. Wise people save and store up. So it's wise to save up and store up money. To save money. You don't have to go into debt to purchase things. Save things up. Pay yourself and earn interest instead of pay, going in debt and paying interest on things. Save things up. Save up food. Nate and I were talking about this earlier before church. About a, I was praying about, Lord, should I, should I buy some of this food? If it's on sale or, or some of the, you know, the food that lasts 25 years in the, the freeze dryer and stuff. And I'm praying, ask the Lord, what do you want me to do if I have a little extra money? And I read this proverb. And it's like, I'm not going to blow through all that I have. We're going to store some things up. So, if, and you know, if you've been following the news at all, that there has been a number of food production warehouses and production plants that have burned, that have had accidents within the last couple years. And people worry about food shortages. Now, we're not going all apocalyptic here and crazy, but it's wise to store some things up, whether it's food. And I wish I had looked into buying like one of those 200-gallon fuel tanks like two years ago when gas was under a dollar a gallon. Do you remember that? I thought, man, I should buy a couple hundred gallons of gas now. Sure wish I would have at that point. Don't blow through everything that you have now. Be wise with what God's provided for you. And if you're saying, man, I'm living paycheck to paycheck, what are some things that I have to do differently? Maybe I don't eat out so much. Maybe I don't, and we spend so much money entertaining ourselves. Maybe we cut some of that back so that we can save so the fool saves, uh, sorry, the wise save, don't go through everything. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Wise people share the gospel. Wise people want to work in the harvest field. There's benefit now on earth because we reach people with, for Christ, and they have eternal life. But also, we store up treasure in heaven when we share the gospel. That's what wise people do. And these final two, I wonder if these two proverbs were proverbs that Daniel had memorized. I'm sure he was familiar with them. Because you can see how these shaped how he lived. Uh, proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. And remember, Daniel refused to drink wine, even though that was not forbidden in the dietary law. He could do that. But he chose not to do that. And I wonder if it was because of this proverb. Because he wanted to be wise and avoid that. And then Proverbs 11, 2, last one. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. We saw Daniel humble and living with humility, and in these coming weeks, we're going to see that more and more, this humility. So my challenge today for each one of us is let's grow as disciples of Christ by imitating Daniel, because he was somebody who was a godly man. So we pursue wisdom. We pursue righteousness and purity. We use the gifts that God has given us, natural gifts and our spiritual gifts. Use them to serve him and to serve in the church. And uh, we, uh, we imitate Daniel and then also we trust God. Remember, he is sovereign. His sovereign hand is at work. He's always working for our good. 
He's developing our character to be like Christ and our priorities to be like Christ. So trust him in his word. And then remember the justice of God. We repent and turn back to God from our sin right away. We want to be on the right side of God's justice. Let's pray. As we're praying, I just want to ask you, is there a sin or an impurity that's, that's, that's crept into your life, that you've walked into, that you need to repent of? Just take a moment now and confess that to God and turn from that. And if you've never turned from your sin or asked Christ to forgive your sin, you can do that right now. Get a new life, new in Christ. Be forgiven and free. But if you've done that, but if you've crept back, what? Is there something you need to repent of? I also want you to ask yourself, what is the gift or gifts that God has given you? Are you using them? Are you honing them? Are they benefiting you? Are they benefiting others? Are you using them to serve his church? Is there anything that you're doing that's foolish? What do you need to do to get on the path of the wise? You need to ask God for wisdom. Search his word for wisdom. Get her in the company of, of the wise. And then what do you need, finally, what do you need to trust God's sovereign hand and work? What's going on in your life? Where are you worried? Where are you fearful? Where are you unsettled? Where do you need to rest in him? trusting him. Father, I thank you for this, this, this beginning to the book of Daniel. We're going to see so much about you, the most high God. Um, you are active, you're involved, you are sovereign. We can trust you and, and pray, Lord, that you would be, continue actively working in our life. We pray that we would cooperate with you with the work you're doing. Lord, part of that work uh, we as a church, we're displaced, we're homeless. We thank you for this place that we can use. Um, we just we continue to ask you, where do you want us to, to land? Where can you use us to reach people? Where's the, what's your plan for us? And we trust you, we wait on you, and ask you to show us. Thank you for all these families, Lord. Bless them in every way, please. Grow them in maturity. Grow them as workers in the harvest field. And grow them, Father, in wisdom. Grow all of us, please, through Christ. Look forward to seeing you next week, uh, Daniel chapter 2. You can read that ahead of time, plus read some Proverbs this week to grow in wisdom. And look forward to seeing you. God bless you. Have a great week.